Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, we are grateful, grateful for this moment. A moment that in your providence, in your loving concern for us, you have given to us. So, Father, as we think about the greatness of your name, we remember that you are the God, according to Isaiah 43, who told us plainly, I love you. Now, Father, we are grateful. And may we learn today, as we look at your word in Peter, May we learn today the excellence of the beauty of the tremendous worth of your glory. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Let me read that again, and you read it up there. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Now, those words put into print a year after my birth in 1986 are really words that have defined a, a generation, a generation of those who have found the highest good in delighting in God. Now, that guy up there, John Piper, he is arguably one of the most influential pastors and theologians of our current generation. And when he said those words, when he wrote those words in his book, Desiring God, it captured my attention, and maybe it will capture yours as well, to answering the question, why did God create the world? Have you ever considered such a question? Why did God create the world? Why does God cause the sun to come up each morning and the stars to follow at night? Why does God allow the mountains to sit silently in place and the oceans to roar and foam? Why do newborn babies cry? Why does the butterfly float around and land on a flower and then stick its little whatever that thing is in there and suck the nectar out? Why does that happen? The answer all for God's glory alone. Now John Piper, he recaptured a theme, and it's really not original with him. It's not new. Piper, he was following a path, a well-worn but forgotten path, tread by others that came before him, guys like Jonathan Edwards, other Puritans, guys like John Calvin and Martin Luther, guys like the Apostle Paul, guys like Peter, James, John, and all the rest of the apostles. And even, of course, going back to the source, even guys like Christ Himself, who taught us this. He taught us that the end for which God created the world, listen closely, is not our happiness, but His glory. Does His glory involve our happiness? Of course it does. But happiness is not the motivation for God doing things. The motivation for God's activity is always, because He's God, it's always the highest attainable thing. And the highest attainable thing imaginable is God's glory. There's nothing higher. There's nothing greater. 
And he's God, so of course he can pursue the highest. Well, what's the highest? Him. And how do we define him? Glorious. I wonder how often we're moved and we're motivated by the astounding, the amazing, the awe-inspiring glory of God. I, I wonder how often we are moved by matchless majesty. I believe A.W. Tozer was right when he said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that for just a moment. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now saying that will either give you great relief or it will cause you great grief. And too often in my experience, and and maybe it's yours too, we don't give our minds over to contemplating the glory of God enough. You and I are too easily satisfied by trinkets when God has laid the very treasure of heaven before us. And it's just not on our own private contemplation that that concerns us where we are confronted with the glory of God and we know that we lack talking about the glory of God. It's one thing to be concerned about, but it's also in the mainstream. Brought to us daily by the very ones who call themselves the practitioners of the gospel. It's pastors and churches who don't confront us with the majesty of God. I believe that Tozer was right. And back in 1961, he saw the landscape and he described it in this way. And this is a lengthy quote, so I'm going to quote it all and have it up on the screen for you so we can follow along. And this is from the preface of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which is the closest thing to a systematic theology that Tozer ever produced. Listen to what Tozer said. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. This low view of God entertained almost universally amongst Christians, is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of the majesty of God has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christians who can appreciate or experience the life of the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. This loss of the concept of majesty has come just when forces of religion are making dramatic gains and the churches are more prosperous than at any times within the past several hundred years. But the alarming thing is that our gains are mostly external and our losses wholly internal. 
And since it is the quality of our religion that is affected by internal conditions, it may be that our supposed gains are but losses spread over a wider field. Since it is the quality of our religion that is affected by internal conditions, it may be that our supposed gains are but losses spread over a wider field. What a convicting quote. And that's just the preface. When Katie and I would go to the convention and hear a, a preacher stand up and begin to preach, you could sense the preachers that were going to take us into the majesty of God. One by the name of H.B. Charles. I don't know if you've ever heard of H.B. Charles, but you should go and YouTube him. Wonderful pastor. When we heard H.B. Charles at the convention in the past time when we were there, I looked over at Katie, and as soon as the man opened his mouth, I looked at my wife, and I said, buckle up, here we go. This is just in the preface that Tozer has these words of conviction. The words that he's describing, what Tozer describes, comes about when the church loses its vision of the glory of God. They lose their sense of wonder. They lose their sense of majesty. They lose the sense of transcendence, of recognizing that there is someone else that is beyond them, but yet compatible with them because of Jesus. Today is Reformation Sunday here at Oxford. I usually don't wear what I'm wearing to preach in, but I figured, hey, I paid money for this thing. Might as well use it at least once, right? This is the Reformation Sunday, and October the 31st, of course, is not Halloween. It's the 500th anniversary this year of Luther's nailing his 95 thesis on the door in a church in Wittenberg, Germany. When he took those 95 sentences or theses, his complaint against the Roman Catholic Church, that sparked the Protestant Reformation. So the past month, we have been looking together, laboring in the text, to look at the five truths that are the product of the Reformation, the five solas. So today, we are ending our series, and we are talking about the fifth sola, soli deo gloria. Say that with me just for a moment. Soli deo gloria. You know what you just said? God's glory alone. And the reason I wanted you to look at that and say it is because that's such a widely used phrase. You need to be able to say it right when you see it. Johann Sebastian Bach, he would sign all of his works of music in the end with those three words. Soli Deo Gloria. God's glory alone. But what on earth do we mean when we say God's glory alone? Here's the way that I want to define it for you. God's glory alone means that in the end, God receives all the glory. God's glory alone means that in the end, God receives all the glory. Now look at that definition just for a moment. Perhaps that troubles you. You say, Pastor, why couldn't you do better than that? That's what you mean by glory? It's interesting that when we define God's glory... We're hard-pressed to come up with another term or any other word other than glory to describe what it is that we mean. It's like, you know, you're struggling to come up with a word and the teacher gives you the word and you go look in the dictionary and, well, there's that word in the definition itself and you didn't know what the word was to begin with and then there it is. So how do you define glory? Well, it's glory. Well, thank you very much, Pastor. Appreciate that. 
God's glory, I believe, is shorthand. It's the way that we speak for describing the preeminent worth, the awe-inspiring splendor, the breathtaking beauty of God. God's glory is meant to direct our affections, our desires, our worship, our adoration, so that we can truly say with our mouths wide open and our hands open to the heavens, God alone, God alone, all glory ascribe. I know some of you are deeper thinkers than that. You're not satisfied with such an abstract definition. Pastor, you need to talk about the Hebrew Chabad. You need to tell us about the word that means weightiness. And you need to tell us all about these things. I know, listen, believe me. I wish that I could do better than such an abstract definition. And it is abstract. But I'm okay with the mystery of it all. And I hope that you're okay with the mystery of it all. You see, here's the truth when we talk about something so heavy as the glory of God. Here's the truth. God is ineffable. Say that with me. Ineffable. You know what that means? It means that God is too great to be expressed in words. This ineffable God who has made Himself known is glorious. The reason why I want to tread so carefully as to giving you the definition of the glory of God is because we don't want to erect a God that we make up in our own imagination. We don't want a God who shares His glory with another. We want a God who cannot and will not share His glory with another. And as an old preacher from the past, John Chrysostom, he told his congregation one time, a comprehended God is no God at all. So, if I were to sum up then the Reformation series in a sentence, every work that we've been laboring for for the past week, the many hours that we've been together learning about this, the hours that I put in study, if I were to sum up the entire Reformation series, it'd be something like this. Salvation. What I mean by salvation is our only hope in life and death. According to Scripture, is in Christ alone by grace alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone. You see the alone's there. Scripture alone and all the rest. They're all there. And so today we contemplate God's glory. Now, before we get even started, I want to pause and just say for just a minute that I, that I hope that you count this a privilege. I hope that you count this a joy. I hope that you are beyond the fact of just coming to church because, well, somebody drugged me here, or, you know, it's, well, you know. And I I believe that you're here today. It's cold outside. The wind's blowing. Listen, I felt it in my bones this morning. I know, standing out there, and I'm glad for this robe today, I know it's cold, and I'm glad that you're here, so I know better. But let's make sure that even in these moments that we are telling our heart, if we have the moment where our minds may drift over here or there, let's make sure that we're telling our hearts, pay attention. Because we today get to contemplate the ineffable God. We today get to contemplate the glory of God. And what a joy, what a privilege. We get to join with the angels of heaven and peer into the very glory of God. The first song you remember that the angels sang when they met Jesus on the earth was what song? Glory. 
Glory to God. You flip back to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the story of the end. It tells a story that we will forever join the angels and our song will be glory to God. And so today, what we get the privilege of doing as a church is we get to tune our hearts to the song of the universe today. The glory of God. Now think back with me for just a moment. Think about where we've been. It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't come to a surprise that that we arrive at God's glory. Think about where we've been. We've, We've seen Scripture alone first. That's where we started as our foundation. What do we mean by Scripture alone? We mean that it's not man's word, but God's word to man alone that marks the plan and the purpose of God. We don't have any other authority other than Scripture. The second, of course, is Christ alone. What else do we mean by that? We mean that there is one name under heaven by which men must be saved. And what's his name, church? Say it. Jesus. Very good. Christ alone means that there's no one else who redeems sinners and turns slaves into sons and daughters. Christ alone. Well, from Christ we go to how Christ has saved us according to His Word. He's done it through grace. What do we mean by grace? We mean that it's a free gift, that there can be no contribution is made by us. Salvation is received. And you say, well, how do we receive it? Faith alone. What does that mean? It means believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No other action is necessary other than you believing in the finished work of the Son. And all of this leads in a culminating sense to where we are today, to God's glory alone. And so what does this do? It means that that no one receives honor, praise, glory, credit for salvation other than God Himself. And so we declare for the ages To God be the glory. All of those terms up there, all of those terms describe salvation. Scripture, Christ, grace, faith, glory. All of those terms describe salvation. But there's there's one word that marks the protest. Can you guess what word it is? It's not Scripture. Everybody's okay with Scripture. During the time of the Reformation, even the Roman Catholics, oh yeah, we love Scripture. Sure. What about Christ? Oh, of course, everyone would agree that it's all for Christ. What about grace? Of course, Pastor, we love grace. What about faith? Oh, I'm fine to talk about faith. Let's talk about it. What about glory? Of course, we talk about God's glory. Everyone agrees with all of these terms. But the word that marks the protest is one word. You know what it is? Alone. Alone. That one word marks the protest. Scripture alone. Christ alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. And in the end, God gets the glory alone. God has orchestrated our eternity with Him in order to remove all obstacles of self-centeredness so that we could forever say great things He has done. To Him alone be glory. By the way, this is why He gave us His Word. This is why He gave us His Word. This is why Peter writes. He understands these things. 
Now, as I told you, I think it was last week or maybe it was a Wednesday night. No one's walking around. You know, Martin Luther's not walking around. He's walking around with a banner. Five solas, sign the bottom line. Nobody, it's not, that didn't happen. These solas were understood to come about as a result of the Reformation. It's a shorthand way of describing salvation. It rose from the text. So take your Bible this morning and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And when you make it over there to 1 Peter, you'll notice that Peter is writing to a select group. He calls them elect exiles. Now, let's think about something just for a minute. He calls them elect exiles. We're okay being called the elect of God, right? We love that's great comfort to know that God has sought us, bought us, made us his very own. That gives us great comfort. But that next word, that's that's not a word of endearment, is it? Exiles? Who wants to be an exile? Nobody. You have all of the things associated with exile, displacement, discouragement, all of this stuff. No one wants to be an exile. We're all fine being elect, but not an exile. And if you're an exile, you probably need an encouraging word. And by the way, let's just make sure that we get there. And I, I can't preach this, but this is important for us. All of us who believe in the Son, all of us who have faith in Christ alone, we are the elect exiles. Even in the land of the free and the home of the brave, we are not at home. We are awaiting a city that is better than anything that we could ever imagine. A city that God is bringing. And so, what's Peter doing? He's looking at these people. He's talking about the reality that they face. They're elect, which is great comfort, but they're also exiles. And so they need further comfort. They need encouragement. And so it's interesting. The way that Peter encourages the church is by keeping the glory of God before them. So at Oxford, we've been looking at chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 for a couple of weeks now. Been demonstrating through each section that these five solas are not imposed on the text, but they rise from the text. And what I want to do today as we finish this sola series is focus on verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter 1. But because 1, 3 through 12 is one long sentence, I want to read it all and then focus on verse 10 through 12. Let's start reading at verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen Him, You love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, 
inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What is Scripture teaching us about God's glory alone? Three things this morning, and they're all from verse 10, 11, and 12. Number one, from verse 10. Glory has been God's plan all along. Look at verse 10. Look at what Peter's doing. Peter is making reference to the plan and the purpose of God from the beginning. Now, who's he talking about here when he talks about prophets and prophesying? What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about. By the way, did you know that in the Hebrew Bible, Joshua's a prophet? He's in the book of the prophets. Judges is in the book of the prophets. I believe that the entire Old Testament, from Genesis 1-1 to the end of the, of the Old Testament and Second Chronicles, I believe that the entire Old Testament is prophetic. It looks ahead. This is why in our English Old Testament, this is why we end with the book of Malachi, waiting for John the Baptist, because the English editors are looking at that and saying, well, there's a prophetic leaning towards the whole Old Testament. So the Old Testament then is telling an unfolding story. What in the world does slaughtering a goat have to do with Jesus dying on the cross? What in the world does David killing Goliath have to do with salvation? And the answer to those questions and many more is everything. Every story whispers the name of Jesus. And so the Old Testament is an unfolding story of God's plan to redeem the world. Now here's what I mean by unfolding. Don't misunderstand me. God's plan is all in the beginning. And each story or each word is further commentary on the way that God has marked for us in the way that He's going to save the world. And how is he going to save the world? Genesis 3.15 tells us. He's going to save it through the seed of a woman. And this seed will have his heel bruised, but he will crush the head of the serpent. And Peter tells the believers, even though they're exiles, that they are the recipients of the hope that not only fills every page of Scripture. Listen carefully. This hope not only fills every page of Scripture, but this hope fills every day of human existence. This is the true story of the whole world. It's not just the Christian story. It's the world story. It's the true story of the whole world. Paul's going to say something similar in Galatians chapter 4 as he is encouraging believers. Listen to what he says. In the fullness of time. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And then the author of Hebrews, he begins in a similar way. Listen to what he says. Long ago, and many times, and in many portions, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What's he talking about? The Old Testament. But listen to what he says. In these last days, He has spoken to us, me and you, By His Son. 
God's plan all along has been the plan to save us and receive glory. Glory has been God's plan all along. This is why the Bible uses terms, and we shouldn't be afraid to speak the way that the Bible speaks. This is why the Bible uses terms like predestination. This is the way the Bible speaks when it uses terms like saying that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. That's all to tell us something. God's plan all along has been for His glory. And we share in that glory. Now back in the 1700s, there was a preacher, probably the most influential preacher that America has ever had, a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. How many of you have ever heard of a guy named Jonathan Edwards? Maybe, if you've not heard of him, maybe you've read one of his works. I remember reading it in high school, I think it was, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Anyone ever read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Good, some of you have. Well, if you haven't, you should. It's probably one of the most famous sermons ever written. Surely one of the most famous American sermons. Edward was a theologian and a pastor. And there's really not a difference there. Everyone's a theologian, but anyway. He was preoccupied with the glory of God. And so he set forth to answer a question. Why did God create the world? And how would you answer that question? I've already asked you once. But how would you answer that question? Why did God create the world? Was it because He was lacking in something and needed something? Was He lonely up in heaven? Is that the reason He did it? Was that He didn't have glory and he, the only way for Him to receive the glory that it was due His name was if He did this? Is that what we mean? God freely chose to create the world to reveal His glory. And His glory being known has been the plan ever since the beginning. And at the centerpiece of the... Re- don't miss this. At the centerpiece of the revelation of the glory of God is something amazing. At the centerpiece of the glory of God is the cross The suffering of the Son. Which is our second point this morning. It's a point that you may not want to write down. And if you do write it down, I pray you write it down with trepidation. Glory comes through suffering. Look at verse 11. The way that God graciously calls us to fellowship with Himself is through the suffering of the Son. The cross of Christ. Now this is important. It's important for us not to forget this. Jesus said, when you see Me, you see the Father. I and the Father are one. Colossians calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. And when we think of Jesus, there's only one image that automatically captures our vision. And surely when you think of Jesus, closely associated with Jesus is the cross. The Son of God crucified. 
is the climax of the story. His whole life, even from Bethlehem's cradle, was leading to Calvary's cross. And from Calvary's cross, it would eventually lead to His crown of glory. But that's the order. That's the order. Cradle, cross, crown. The glory of God is manifest in the cross. As one theologian said, to behold the God of glory, we must behold God beaten, mocked, and crucified. Now that sounds strange, doesn't it? Glory comes through suffering. Oh, perhaps if you were all wise, you would have done it a different way, right? Maybe there's a better way. Let me just assure you with this. If there was a better way, our God who is good would have done it. But there wasn't a better way. Sounds strange to our modern sensibilities. And realistically, it sounded strange for a long time. Not just maybe in our ears. But it sounded strange in a long time. This is the scandal of the cross. This is what made Christianity so revolutionary. People talk about, you know, make the gospel revolutionary. and You don't have to do anything but preach the gospel. It's already revolutionary in and of itself. One of the earliest depictions of Jesus is, is actually a Roman piece of graffiti scratched on a plaster wall somewhere around 200 A.D. The Elaxamenos Graffito. That's what it's called, what you're looking at. That's the earliest depiction of Jesus. Look at the cross. Something strange about that, isn't there? It depicts a man being crucified, but look at his head. Do you see what's on his head? The head of a donkey. This has been interpreted as the Romans mocking the idea that Christian worship a man that they had defeated, that they had crucified. Such an idea of a suffering Savior, you know what it does? It takes every paradigm that this world holds dear and turns it on its head. But you and I who know the crucified one, we agree with Paul. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of discerning I will thwart. Peter's telling the church that you're the elect exiles. Take comfort in the fact that Christ's suffering has brought about glory. That's his message. Remember the cross. Remember the glory. Now there's a seam that Peter's showing us. Look at verse 1. Just follow along very quickly. There's this scene where the elect exiles. Then look at verse 6 and 7. He talks about trials, suffering. Then look at verse 11. The suffering of the Son. Then flip over, if you wouldn't mind, to chapter 2 in verse 21 where Peter says this. He says, to this suffering. This is your calling. To this you have been called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. Suffering shouldn't surprise us if we understand that glory 
comes through suffering. The Christ who suffered calls us to glory. And the way that He calls us to glory is by calling us to take up our cross and follow Him. Listen, glory is coming. But before glory comes, what's the Bible say? The tested genuineness of your faith in verses 6 and 7, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, so that in the end, this faith, look at it, may be found in verse 7 to result in praise. And what's that word? Glory and honor at Jesus' second coming, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, number 3 this morning, number 3 from verse 12, glory is for us but it's never unto us. It's for us, but it's never unto us. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 gives us the beautiful paradox of the glory of God. God is glorious. We are not. But it's through Christ that God causes we who are not glorious to share in His glory. And it's with the same Encouragement that the Holy Spirit spoke through Peter. He spoke through another guy named Paul to another church. Listen to the way Second Thessalonians says it. To this He called you through our Gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Did you hear it? Obtain. You obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You obtain glory. How? Through Christ. Christ's glory is shared with us. It's for us. But it's never about us. The glory is His and then we are in Him. That's the order. It's His glory and we are in Him. And as as David Crowder declared in a song, You, O God, make everything glorious. Everything glorious. And I am Yours. What does that make me? Let's go back to where we began. John Piper said this, and I think that he's right. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. You know what he's he's doing? He's just taking that from another significant Christian confession. What do we mean by confession? He's letting this rise from the pages of Scripture. There was a uh, Reformation confession came like a hundred years after the Protestant Reformation called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's a Presbyterian confession. Listen to what it says. It opens with this line. You've heard it before. What is the chief end of man? The answer? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Do you hear the reciprocal relationship there? Do you hear it? God who is all-sufficient delights in His people delighting in Him. Think about that. God who is all-sufficient Take the mountains and put them in place. Can take the oceans and scoop his hand down, and there's the oceans. Who can just speak 
and place the stars in the sky. He looks down at all of your wanderings about and this and that. And for reasons that are beyond anything imaginable, God, who is all-sufficient in Himself, delights in you delighting in Him. It's no wonder in verse 12 that the angels long to look into this glorious salvation that God has freely given us. Don't you love that line? Things into which angels long to look. When I read my Bible, I see angels there. They're usually, they have a front row seat on a lot of God's mighty acts. But of all the acts through history, there's one act that captures the audience of heaven. And you know what it is? It's your salvation. It's my salvation. It's God choosing freely just because He wanted to to seek and save lost ones like you and me. Angels, you know what they're doing? Listen. They are longing to look into the glorification of me and you. Listen to me, beloved. And I pray the Holy Spirit convict you and convince you of this beyond the ineloquence of a preacher. God's glory is the highest calling. God's glory is your greatest good. You get to spend the rest of your life in pursuit of this God who has already been pursuing you. And I just wonder as we think about today, I just wonder if if this is your story. If this glory is your story. If the glory of God is your story. Are you right now Glorifying Christ? Or have you disregarded the treasure of heaven for trinkets and temporary pleasures instead of pursuing and being awestruck by this God who has gone through such great lengths to seek and save you? Are you glorifying Christ? If not, then let me tell you, this glory can be yours. It can be yours. Jesus has accomplished everything necessary for you to come to Him. But listen, you must come. You must come to Him with empty hands and say, I surrender to Your glory. Father in Heaven, we love You and we praise You. I pray, Father God, that we would learn to pursue Your glory. That we would truly believe when we confess that Your glory is our highest good. Father, if there's one here today who knows that they are not living a life of glory, they know that they've never trusted in Jesus Christ. They know that they've never placed their faith in Christ for salvation. 
May they do so even now. The quiet of their heart. May they lift up their hands empty and say, I surrender. Save me, O God. Save me, O God. Consume me with your glory. And here's the truth, beloved. You will either be consumed with His glory or you will be consumed by His glory. Choose Christ. Run to Him who is ready to save you and give you a life filled with His glory. We commit our lives to You now, O Lord. Don't let us be satisfied with trinkets. Help us to pursue the greatest treasure, the highest good, the glory of God, in whose name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at oxfordbaptistchurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.